0: Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org.
1: Welcome to this episode of Arabiyat. This is an exciting episode, something that uh, is unique because we actually went abroad. I have two guests with me in studio, but before I introduce them, let me introduce the episode. We've all heard of the stories of refugees fleeing war and violence from their home countries into the West. But what happens to those who survive the dangerous journey away from home? The stories and experiences are as diverse as the people seeking refuge themselves. Some settle in very quickly especially when they have family or friends in their host countries. But many end up in refugee camps for much longer than expected. While there, small, unique societies form, which those of us who don't live in refugee camps will ever experience or even hear about. With me today are two guests. I have Tawfiq Halabi and Betsy Blakesley. They both recently returned from trips from what is known as the Jungle, a refugee camp located in Calais, France where they implemented a music program for the refugees in the camp. But before he left, my good friend Tawfiq, I told him to record a few interviews for me with people he'd meet in the camp. So we're going to be playing some of those clips for you, and we're going to learn about their stories. Tawfiq Halabi is a Palestinian-American musician who recently traveled to Calais with the Expressive Arts Refuge. He was there for the last week of July. Welcome, Tawfiq.
2: Thank you. It's wonderful to be here
1: and Betsy Blakesley organized the Expressive Arts Refuge program, which she'll tell us more about. She was there last July and August. Her blog is earefuge.wordpress.com. Welcome, Betsy. Thank you, Linda. The jungle was established in 2009. Its population is disputed, but the numbers range between 3,700 to a little over 5,000, depending on who you ask. So many living in the camp stay there in hopes of eventually entering the United Kingdom. Why don't you tell me why you decided to actually create Expressive Arts Refuge?
3: I direct World Harmony Chorus, and I love projects that take me abroad and allow me to enter a multicultural experience, particularly if there are arts and music involved with them. So I'd heard about the refugee crisis in Europe and was thinking I'd like to do something. So I've been following on Facebook what kinds of organizations were offering what, and I saw that there was a vacuum when it came to
1: participatory musical experiences. So the kind of help that you were trying to bring to the camp was to bring them music, right? And a lot of people would say, oh, why don't you bring them food or, you know, those kinds of more basic needs. Why music? Why art?
3: There were a number of organizations who were already providing food, clothing, shelter, and I'm a choral director, so I thought, how can I best use my skills? I thought it would also be interesting and fun. And also there's such a need for arts as a way for people to come together, express themselves, have some sense of joy. There's something in music called entraining. And we don't think about it a lot, but when people are together singing or drumming or dancing together in a group, There's a sense of community that develops. It's palpable. It's much more kinesthetic. In the case of singing, it also has to do with opening one's mouth at the same time other people are opening their mouths and listening and hearing the collective sound. People take an enormous amount of comfort from that if it's done in a safe setting. So I went especially with this notion of offering the kind of entraining that a musical environment can provide as a way to reduce stress, to diminish the PTSD, that the people who have become refugees were experiencing
1: So I'm gonna play some music uh, right now from this uh, Sudanese pop music being played in the Kaais refugee camp in a tent <laughs> So you you joined Betsy as what? What was your role in this?
2: I was part of the group that came in to participate in the music program in the jungle. Uh, Myself and uh, actually two of my siblings and two of my fellow choristers all came at about the same time and we assisted uh, Betsy with this music program.
1: And when you got to the camp, what, what was your first impressions?
2: Before I went, I, I did some reading online about the jungle and about the uh, situation for the refugees in various European countries. And I thought I would like to explore a little bit about what it means to be a refugee. So, for me, there, there was something in it for me, as well as participating in a program that brought benefits to refugees. Really, there's nothing that can prepare one for entering into a refugee camp, for all the things that we've read and seen. Being there, feeling it, listening to the sounds, looking looking people in the eye, smelling the smells, feeling the air, walking and being there with other refugees. It's not possible to prepare for that. It's very heartbreaking um, to see people wandering around the camp, not knowing what their future held. A lot of these folks uh, were survivors, had traversed, great distances and tremendous hardships in their home countries, first of all, getting out of their home countries, and then going across deserts and seas and, frankly, hostile countries to arrive at this location in France with the hope of going to the UK for a better life. And a lot of these folks were not documented, did not have refugee asylum status, and were trying to figure out how to get into the UK. It was very difficult. And I thought, we were there perhaps in, in the grand scheme of things to bring a little humanity to their experience. And we were there to sing with them, to hold hands with them, to look them in the eye and to tell them that, you know, they are as human as anybody else. It's just right now they're in an unfortunate circumstance. That, that's really what I think of when I, when I think of what did I see and what did I feel
1: do you think that the trauma that they've experienced has caused them to forget their own humanity?
2: No. I think um, in order to survive, in order to survive in their home countries, in order to arrive at the conclusion that it's in their best interest to leave their families and their jobs and their loved ones and their communities, uh, and in order to survive uh, traveling through deserts and foreign countries, I think they'll never forget their humanity. They, they can't. They would have died along the way if they did. So here, here you talked about community in the camps. We came across many communities, people looking out for each other, taking care of each other, giving each other hope. And I, think I, would, like, I would like to think that we played a part in that, is bringing a little bit of hope and comfort to the daily routine.
3: When we arrived on the 1st of July, the camp was 7,000 people. When I left at the end of August, it was not over 9,000 people. It's difficult to imagine so many newly arrived refugees coming there with the clothes on their back, maybe holding the hand of a child. They've all left family behind. Almost all of them were young men traveling alone or maybe with a cousin. There was a small section of the camp that was a family camp, but they were pretty much sequestered from the, the rest. So it's difficult to imagine walking down a gravel road, if you will, that has, I don't know, like huts that are set up as a small shop that sells a few essentials and some restaurants that are run by the entrepreneurial migrants who've arrived and want to make a go of it. And then there's something about the way that people look each other in the eye. It's almost as if they're saying, we are here, We don't exactly want to be here. We don't even know exactly where here is. We don't really know what France is or how it feels about us. Many are trying to get to the UK, which is why they've landed in Calais, which is the northernmost point of France. And yet there's this spirit in this town of welcoming all the new faces of Westerners. It's not hard to spot us. Welcoming each other, looking out for each other, anything that seems to get roused there's immediately a crowd of people trying to de-escalate it because there isn't a police system there. There isn't someone in charge. There isn't a government. So each of the communities has a leader that's recognized, but because almost all of the refugees are so young, the leaders might be 34 years old. So it's a tremendous opportunity for people to be loving and welcoming towards each other, to share, to conduct themselves in a way that's impressively civilized given their surroundings. So once in a while, there is a brawl that happens in the lunch line, but it 's so infrequent and When you think about the demeaning conditions of having to wait for an hour in a line for a lunch that 's provided for you that you have no say in what the food is, and it only is offered once a day and if you miss it there 's no dinner it 's quite impressive. I felt always safe there as a woman alone. Um, part of my team joined me at the beginning, another larger part of my team joined me at the end, and there were a couple of weeks in the middle when I was there on my own but wasn't exactly on my own, because I was surrounded by 7,000 people who were all, not all, but many were interested in why I was there, where I was from, why did I come from such a long distance, what were we going to do in the music class I was offering, and I'd rope in other people to assist me who were not officially part of my expressive arts refuge team. So the palpable humanity of people who've lost everything by Western standards, but still have their heart intact, their values intact their sense of ethics intact, their sense of being able to establish a sense of community in, in an environment where things are always changing, and you have a tent, and the next day there's two new tents next to yours, and you had really preferred that to have a little space between your tent and the others, but they make a go of it.
1: So you've spoken about the different communities that exist there, can you, either of you, let tell me who are the diverse communities? Because I know we hear a lot about the Syrians.
2: Sure. The largest community of refugees is from Sudan. The second largest community is from Afghanistan, the Pashtuns. In addition, uh, we had interacted with some Ethiopians uh, from the Oromia uh, culture, uh, with many Eritreans who were escaping a very brutal dictatorship, which we don't hear about here in the United States, but um, through reading online uh, from various sources, I understand is about as bad as the North Korean dictatorship. Uh, we've met uh, Syrians and Iraqis and, and uh, Iranians and many Kurds. The Kurds came from various countries, as well as some Pakistanis and Tajiks and Pashtuns.
1: Tell me some of the stories of people you've spoken to who really stuck with you the most.
2: Sure. I alluded to, earlier in our conversation, I alluded to folks arriving at the conclusion that they had to leave their home country. So I'll try to paint a picture of some of the gentlemen that I interviewed. I'm going to talk about Sudan because those are the folks that I interviewed and interacted with the most. Sudanese, apparently, they have many different regions, and each region has many different tribes. They don't always get along. There's been a long-standing conflict. Uh, I'm going to put it in the terms of the Arabs versus the Africans. That's not really an accurate description, but this, I think it's the best way for us here in the West to understand it. The central government is, is more aligned with the Arabs in Sudan.
1: But they are still black, right?
2: Uh, they are black. Okay, so and it's
1: like black Arabs versus black
2: black Africans. Africans. Yes. Something like that, yeah. yeah. That's a good analogy there. And there were a lot of Africans that did not identify as Arabs. Uh, but they're actually educated. They they read and write Arabic. They speak Arabic. They listen to Arabic pop, pop music. And interestingly, they could understand my dialect, which is more of a Palestinian dialect, because back home, they would watch Syrian soap operas and Lebanese music programs. So they were exposed to the various dialects. That was a surprise to me. Um, Well,
1: can I say something about that? Because I think it's because the center of media is in the Levant, you know, Egypt and Lebanon. So oftentimes the dialects, the Palestinians or people from from the Levant cannot understand, like the Moroccans and the Sudanese, they can understand us.
2: And with the Sudanese, uh, when they spoke with me, sometimes they would shift into something that sounded a little more Egyptian, which was familiar to me from media. And sometimes they would stick with their own dialects, which was their own Arabic uh, version of Arabic, I should say, which was a little more difficult. In any case, within within Sudan, the various regions and tribes they don't they don't necessarily speak the same language. They don't necessarily have the same culture. But Arabic seemed to be the unifying language. This is not something that I was aware of prior to my trip to Calais, and they would identify each other. Based on their accents, they could tell, oh, this guy's from the west, this guy's from the north, based on how they spoke Arabic. And back home, in their home regions, they would all have their own languages that they would speak in addition to Arabic. So that was something fascinating for me to learn. What I understood was that these folks had lives. I interviewed people who stated that they had jobs and careers. Some of them were educated. Uh, some of them were married with children. A lot of them were on the younger side, so not all of them were married. But at some point, after being harassed, after being recruited to serve in various militias, after being detained, arrested, after, after being threatened, life became unbearable. And in a lot of cases, their families told them to leave, their mothers and sisters. In some cases, they lost family members and then arrived at the conclusion that it would behoove them to move on, otherwise they would meet the same fate. So I would empathize thinking, my goodness, if I were living in a country where things became so unbearable and the best thing for me to do was to leave everything behind and go through a desert and try to cross the sea, it's got to be bad. It's got to be really, really bad. So, yeah, a lot of them had to figure out ways to smuggle, to get smuggled through the desert. Some of them would go on their own. Some of them would find others to, to walk with, um, or they would work with smugglers. A lot of them complained that the smugglers would rip them off make arrangements and make uh, down payments, and then uh, they would be uh, stiffed. So that was something they had to contend with. After arriving in, let's say, Egypt or Libya, then they would have to regroup. Some of them were detained when they arrived because there has been a history of black Africans going up into northern Africa and then trying to cross the Mediterranean for various reasons. In some of those countries, they will arrest the black Africans and detain them in some cases, guys had to bribe their way out of these detention centers. They used to have to find smugglers to smuggle them across the Mediterranean. These are the Sudanese coming from Africa, and uh, the there were harrowing trips. I heard stories about people dying on the trips, um, suffocating in some belly of some makeshift ship. Of course, there were some drownings if the seas if the conditions in the seas were really bad. And a lot of these folks would arrive in Italy. Uh, however, their experience in Italy was not one of being welcomed as a refugee. It was more of being herded into detention centers in order to be recorded. I heard stories about uh, the authorities forcing uh, the refugees to give their fingerprints, using cattle prods, and sometimes breaking bones in order to make sure that the refugees gave fingerprints against their will. Also heard stories about being, uh, again, shipped into detention centers in Italy and having to figure out a way to get out. Uh, one, of, one of the interviewers interviewees described it as a, uh, um, if I recall, it was an island with four walls and no doors. And they had to figure out how to bribe their way out and they would travel up the coast of Italy towards uh, towards the west towards France, and um, if they crossed into France, they ran the risk of being caught by the French authorities, being deported out of France back to Italy, and the Italian authorities deporting them back down south to the detention centers. So this a couple of diff- couple guys had said similar stories about having to go back a second or a third time to the detention centers, again, bribing their way out and learning the hard way that the best way to cross is to go up a little more north and cross through the mountains into France, which, of course, is difficult because they were not wearing appropriate shoes to be walking long distances and and things like that. So it's a very harrowing journey. And then um, arriving in France and working their way to Calais only to find that the local authorities in Calais don't really want them there and also the British don't want them there. Did uh, they
1: have the impression that they'd be welcomed with open arms? Not
2: necessarily, but they had heard stories that things were better in Europe. Maybe they had heard stories about Germany or Scandinavia. Maybe things are better there. But in, these gentlemen working their way towards the U.K., they, didn't, they were not greeted uh, well at all.
1: What you said reminded me of one of the interviews you did of a person who obviously also had a very harrowing experience, they all do. His name was Fauzi, the Syrian. But he did mention he said something very interesting and as an Arab American I'd like you to comment. He talked about how, you know, I left the Middle East and I left I left the Arab and the Muslim world and I and I was really he, he had a positive experience entering Europe in general. He said that the Europeans welcomed him and he was embarrassed coming from the Arab world from how we were treating each other. Can you comment on that?
2: He was talking about being from Syria and the experience of living through uh, four or five years of the, maybe we refer to it as the Syrian Civil War, ever since the uh, Arab Spring in early 2011. So what he was talking about was the, the various factions that are fighting each other in Syria. Purportedly, each side is fighting the good fight, and then the sides splinter off and fight against each other and ally with each other against others. And this goes around and around. And various groups come in and take control of certain regions and, and cities, and maybe uh, Perform some slaughters along the way. I think what he was getting at was the inhumanity of the fighting that's going on in Syria. And that, of course, can be expanded to other countries. But the fact that these Arabs are killing each other, these various Muslim groups are killing each other, or uh, that it's just ongoing. It's it's a, a bloodbath that's ongoing. And there didn't seem to be an end. And in his case, he had a family and... Had a good life, I guess.
1: He didn't seem to have the same experience as the, the Sudanese. And do you think it has to do with the color of his skin?
2: It's, it's possible because he is fair-skinned and he looks Caucasian. And I hadn't thought of it, but yeah, maybe, maybe it's easier for the Europeans in a broad sense to welcome somebody who looks like them rather than somebody who looks differently.
1: Well, I read, and like, tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, there, the majority of the people in Calais are like trying to illegally enter the UK. Is there even an opening for people at this point? I think it's completely. I thought it was closed off to them.
2: It is closed off. They they would like to enter legally, but most of them don't have access to legal assistance to enter legally. There is a little bit of effort on the part of some of the volunteers who are there to make life a little better for the refugees. British and French young people would provide legal assistance to refugees that were seeking to enter the UK or, or perhaps seek asylum in France through legal channels. But that, that not being the case for most people, they didn't have access to that kind of assistance. Then they wanted to enter illegally. And there may be some backstories as to why they don't want to register with some organizations. And they may be holding out for a better life in the U.K. because they have a loved one or a family member who is in the U.K. who's waiting for them.
1: So tell me, let's talk about the volunteers. Um, I'm going to play some sound from one volunteer. Um, He's a Jordanian. (laughs) who had, like, an English accent. I'm not sure. He was an interesting character. Um, He seemed to be on his own journey in the camps, and I'm, I'm sure that, like, anyone who voluntarily came to these camps without a real reason, like, seeking refuge, there must be something inside of them that's causing... They're searching for something, right? So let's play that sound.
0: The thing is, at some point, I was sitting in a restaurant, and I've seen, like people from different nationalities along with the volunteers and they all sit in the same place and the restaurant was really nice you know and they shared food and they watched tv charged their phones and whenever it doesn't matter which restaurant you go there's always like a mixture of culture within the restaurant so this was for me like one of the okay so one of the things that was switched my mind okay this place has something in it it's something different in this place and later on started start figuring out that the jungle is also like there's associations which work along the refugee to make it I would say it's not sorting this problem it just makes it less miserable so when you provide for example clothes or food or whatever you're not sorting out this the problem for the migrant because he's here for one reason—he wants to go to the UK. He wants to cross the border, and no matter what you provi- provide for him, it's still accessories. It's not—you're not solving the problem for him. You're just making it less miserable, which is a very good thing. Because with, when you look at the situation without it, it would be more and more and more miserable. So this is what I like, you know, about the idea of volunteering.
1: So, Betsy, did you know Mohammed? Did you... Uh, sure. Yeah. I think the uh, volunteers
3: in the Kelly jungle are a very interesting group of motivated, dedicated people. It's quite impressive that they are, in a way, running a town for now close to 10,000 refugees with very little help from the French government. And the people are, meager as it is, receiving two meals a day. They're receiving also food packages, which they can use to, on a small propane stove, make some food or tea on their own. Most everyone there has a tent to live in that's provided by volunteers. They receive clothing in organized distribution points. There are maybe three or four first aid stations. Mohammed runs one uh, that does has other functions as well. They run a school. There are actually two or three schools. There's one major language school which has nonstop French and English classes from 11 to seven, seven days a week, um, with um, overlapping classes, small classes of about six or seven clusters of migrants with one teacher all day long. There's a small school for children, and then there are various other other kinds of functions that they serve. It's, I would say at any given day, there are probably about 200, possibly 300 volunteers in the camp. Maybe a quarter of them are people who are there for the long term. Almost all of them are working without a salary, and the other three quarters are people who come for shorter periods of time. number of people come from the U.K. for the weekend- And they do it maybe twice a month. There were very few Americans there, our team and a couple of others, a lot of um, French. And people are on their own journey trying to make a dent in the extreme suffering that's going on there. And I think they're doing a remarkable job of it for the most part, given that there's no overriding internationally recognized experienced organization overseeing it. And this is the part that is difficult to really acknowledge. And that is the following. There wouldn't be such a large number of refugees if Western powers, including our country, hadn't intervened in military ways, destroying some towns and creating refugees. It doesn't mean that there wouldn't be any refugees because People left to their own devices without Western intervention can also create situations from which people flee. But we sit comfortably in the West, protected by that knowledge that we or our governments help to create some of this situation, and we're not really feeling the responsibility for improving the lives of people who are suffering on account of that. So when people's hearts open... So much to the suffering of refugees, and they have a little time on their hands, and they step inside Calais Jungle, and they see this enormous—I don't know if I'm doing it a disservice to call it a love fest, but there's a great deal of love and cooperation among these volunteers who are constantly shifting, and the people who have become refugees who also help each other, and everyone is helping each other and welcoming each other and making music together— drinking tea together, there's something that's profoundly connected in a way that Westerners are often missing in our own cultures, which have in place um, much more distinct physical boundaries. We don't sit knee to knee in a tent, clapping and drumming and singing together. You don't let your knee fall against somebody else's knee unless that's your boyfriend. There, there's no space around anybody, and they're coming from cultures where it doesn't matter if knees touch so it just what happens every day and men walk hand in hand through the camp together expressing affection in a way that feels completely natural is come from cultures where that happens so i think there are a lot of nuanced interesting dynamics that sometimes people have language for in the west and sometimes not that are at play And uh, one friend who's been working there for a year calls it being a Kalasian. He said sometimes people just get hooked on the sweetness of helping out together in this situation where you can feel how much of a difference you make on a daily basis just by listening, connecting, making eye contact, accepting what people want to give you as well, teaching a bit of their language and so on, that they want to keep coming back.
1: Yeah, Muhammad was telling about how he was, he kind of rambled a little bit, but in his speaking, he talked about living life. He doesn't even live in the West, actually, but he lives a comfortable life in Jordan. And how he basically was saying that he his life had much less meaning in a kind of a corporate, very comfortable life situation in which he wasn't really helping those most in need. Not that everybody has to, but he found more comfort in being on this level of poverty, even in the level of poverty that he is and feeling more meaning in his life. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Yes, so I, he, I yeah. Yes,
2: I can relate to that. I, I would have stayed longer if I could have. I just have, happened to have a family to take care of and a job and a life back here in the United States. But I would like to have stayed longer. Uh, in fact, um, my sister, after we concluded our music program, She changed her travel plans. She extended her stay for a couple of weeks. She was able to. And she went back into the camp for maybe 10 or 12 days and volunteered as an English language teacher on her own uh, without the rest of us. So, yeah, there is a lot of meaning in being there, witnessing what's going on, uh, being a witness and, and maybe doing something like this, getting the word out.
1: I mean, can you like expand on that a little bit? Because I think people really see, of course, these people are victims of a tragedy that you're finding in the camps. But at the same time, there's clearly a, a situation within the camp, and and when that's so unique and different than living in bubbles of wealth, especially here where we live in Silicon Valley, and. I feel personally that you know we we have lost a lot of our humanity it's not our fault that we've lost a little bit of our humanity but when you're so safe and secure it almost you forget your own vulnerability and I guess there's so much vulnerability in these camps that it kind of re- reminds us of like where we could be if you are open to that I mean can you explain from your perspective why would you say in the camp? why would someone actually want to live there for the long term
2: sure well th- there's a lot of work to be done and it is it is possible to make connections with other human beings, in some cases instantly, really just a handshake or a hug. And um, one thing I noticed going back to what Betsy said about being Kalashian, I noticed there was a, there was mixing of the cultures. I noticed you know we have maybe the larger groups may have been the Pashtuns and the Sudanese and the Eritreans, but in the camp together they kind of lived uh, in mixed neighborhoods, let's say. Let's call it that. And uh, maybe the shops and restaurants were owned by particular ethnic groups, but we did see a lot of mixing and collaboration. We saw people coming together, uh, trying to make sense of the situation, trying to keep things in an orderly fashion. It's really easy because you know, different cultures have different norms, different forms of etiquette different ways of expressing um, their feelings. And you can imagine you mix a few thousand people together uh, that have endured some pretty rough circumstances, have traveled through foreign countries, they're arriving at a location. It's not the promised land. It's porta-potties and waiting in line and having to be with a lot of people that are complete strangers. There's a lot of opportunity for for discord and friction. But actually, what we found was quite the opposite. We found that people were very collaborative, very patient, very understanding. Um, So many instances where people were intervening to try to arrive at a solution, an amicable solution among different groups. Actually, mostly it was within the same ethnic group. So somebody stepping in, to their own ethnic group to resolve a conflict between two of their brethren, so to speak. Mm. Um, and and
1: for, it, can I say, for example, because I remember from one of the interviews, it was that, you know, people wait in line for food, and someone would decide, I'm not waiting today, I'm going to cut. And there, it's just, it means a lot more than just cutting in line at Safeway, right? <laughs> like, you're yeah. not, you, no one's going to not have food that day. If you cut, you get cut in Safeway, you're just going to be a little inconvenience, But there, the stakes are a lot higher. So... Fights would break out, and, like Fozi said, the Syrian refugee it, on a daily basis, there's always an opportunity for a fight
2: absolutely they at the distribution centers, they only have so many goods to distribute on a given day, whether it's shoes or socks or sleeping bags or what have you. Um, at the first aid stations, there's really only so much first aid material that's available in fact, when we were there we would make a point of trying to ask around what people needed because we had done some fundraising here in the United States. And, um, for example, one time we knew that they needed socks, so we went to a discount store and got a few hundred pairs of socks at discounted rates and brought them and gave them to the distribution point. At one point in time, the first aid stations needed uh, what they call medicated cough syrup. It might be prescription cough syrup here in the United States, but over there you can buy it at a pharmacy. So we went and we got, you know, a stock, and we distributed it to two different first aid stations. Uh, so there's always a need for stuff. And I think that was the the beauty of some of the volunteer work that was going on. You didn't always know what you were getting into. Maybe you could find your rhythm if you had something particular to offer. I don't know, maybe somebody is an adept carpenter and... Some structures needed to be constructed or reinforced or relocated. So that person would step in and offer their assistance. Um, In other cases, it may be uh, language, teaching English, teaching French. Um, So everybody kind of found the rhythm. I felt people were really pitching in. I was particularly impressed with um, the uh, Auberge warehouse. Auberge was a local nonprofit organization, and they utilized a warehouse to receive goods, sort them, and then transport them into the camp. The warehouse was located in town. This is a this is a port city, an industrial city. It's not a tourist attraction. Um, and so there's a warehouse district that's near the port, and that's where the Aubert's warehouse was located. And I remember walking in there a couple of times, just being astounded at how much activity there was. It's almost like walking into a beehive. You have all these I call them kids, really young people, university age, British and French, buzzing about, sorting things, piling things, moving things around. And I I walked through and I videotaped. And um, it's just amazing how much activity, but it was somewhat coordinated. People had a common goal. People knew that there was a purpose. They may not even speak the same language, but they're able to communicate and get things done. For me, that was very beautiful. I have a lot of respect for the volunteers. It gives me hope.
1: I mean, is this completely volunteer-run, this whole camp? There's no overarching authority?
3: There's no overarching authority because it's an unofficial camp that's not been recognized. Mm. Um, The hands of some of the international organizations one would expect to step in are tied. So, for example, in my two months there, I saw one UN person the entire time, who was just coming for a look. Wow. Um, Médecins Sans Frontières has a very, very small presence, that uh, and they don't provide medical care there. And they leave at 5 o'clock. And most of the organizations might have one or two staff uh, who are paid, and the rest are volunteers working under them. So as I said before, I think it's quite impressive that these largely volunteer Organizations are running a town which is now swelled to 10,000 people. Now 10,000 It's and continuing to grow. It continues to grow and this is hard to picture but since the demolition of the southern half of the camp in February, March of this year the half of the population that used to live in shacks there has been moved to the northern half so... It was a cruel decision that was decided on by the Calais prefecture, if I understand the process properly, to try to dissuade new refugees from hearing about the camp and coming. That has not happened. About 50 to 100 new refugees arrive every day all summer. So it just means that they're living in half the amount of acreage they used to. And there's now a large uh, field of mustard flowers where there used to be shacks. They also decided to demolish the southern half, which had better structures. Most everyone had a shack to live in, which would have enabled them to survive the winter better. than the northern half, where almost everyone lives in a tent, and the tents are flimsy, and they're secured into sand, uh, so they blow around in the strong wins. And the police forbid volunteers and migrants from bringing in building supplies, which is quite a cruel decision.
1: Sounds like Gaza. Yeah. Basically the blockade. Most vulnerable people in Palestine are treated the worst. So, I mean, that's really unfortunate to hear that it's that horrible and it's getting worse. And didn't you tell me, Taufik, that there are plans, I think, to demolish it further or close it? What what are these plans, and what do they expect these people to do, from, from your impression, What you know?
2: Yes, while we were there, we heard rumors that the authorities were planning on demolishing the northern portion of the camp. Well, upon my return to the United States, when I would get online to read up on Calais, I actually saw it in writing. I saw that the, was that the mayor of Calais, I believe, had basically stated, and it was recorded in one of the... Uh, Uh, online articles from one of the news organizations. They stated that they were going to demolish the camp. I'm not sure really what kind of foresight they had. I'm I'm not sure what they thought would happen to 10,000 refugees who want to go to the U.K., who don't really want to uh, spread out into various cities and countries in the E.U., um, I'm not sure what's going to happen. And
1: I don't think any <laughs> Europeans want random refugees like settling in random places. That's where are they supposed to go? It's like, yeah.
2: The, the only thing we could think of that would happen then would be these folks would disperse. They would stay in the Calais area. Uh, they would um, form much smaller groups of 5 or 10 or 20 people. And they would... Um, Find spots, uh, abandoned uh, lots or behind buildings or near the beach. And what would be sad would be um, think of the you know the porta potties and the drinking water availability and food distribution and um, shoes and socks and personal toiletries. So that's what it takes to to run a little town, so to speak, of 10,000 people at least they're all in one location and people can communicate and express their needs. The volunteers can put out the word um, about the needs and there can be a response. If everybody's dispersed, it would be, I think it would be a disservice to, well, not only to the individuals that are impacted, but I think to the community of Calais at large. It would be a real disservice to have many, 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 many groups of small people frustrated.
1: And more people like still enter people are still going to be coming people so are still going to come like, yeah let 's not end on that note, and it doesn 't mean that necessarily that is going to happen. They may have stated that they will disperse, but being leaders, they might reconsider that decision and Calais is just one group of refugees out of many millions now that are in europe internationally and we 're like I just want to bring some big picture here. Um, this is one small group within France the majority, vast majority of refugees fleeing conflict all over the region are actually, the majority are in neighboring Arab countries or African countries or yes. whatever it is, you know, Lebanon, Jordan. We know they hold. Turkey, Turkey has a humongous amount. And Turkey is often where people kind of stop off before they try to get into Europe. Um, I know that one, Fauzi, the one I mentioned a few times, you told me he was re, he was actually able to settle in somewhere in France. He yes. left the camp. So yes. let's, let's talk about that. Sure.
2: Here's something that's very interesting, <laughs> yeah. Linda. Right. You know, in this day and age, these um, refugees, they're actually very savvy. A lot of them are educated and had jobs back home, and they know how to communicate via social media. The Wi-Fi truck actually was a service, a free service, provided by some young British volunteers where any camp refugee, or anybody for that matter, can come and charge their cell phone for free and use the Wi-Fi for free and get some legal advice for free. So these folks are on Facebook, and they communicate with each other. They communicate with their loved ones back home. And um, now I have some Facebook friends in other parts of the world that I I would not have otherwise, including some of the refugees that I interacted with and worked with in the jungle. This gentleman Fauzi did, in fact, seek asylum in France, and he was relocated. He has moved and uh, apparently is starting a new life, and his goal would be to reunite with his family. Uh, His wife and four children are still in Syria, and he has an extended family on his side of the family and his wife's side of the family as well that are still in Syria.
1: Are his sons with him, though? He's all alone. Really? So this just brings up one
3: um, point which I'd like to make, which is that there are so many uh, factors in uh, diminishing the suffering of people who have become refugees. One is to see them as people who have become refugees rather than as a a lump group of people who we don't know what to do with or Westerners don't know what to do with. The other thing is to expedite the reunification of particularly the unaccompanied minors but all the refugees with family members who are, have already established a life in a Western country where they're safe from what they've fled. And um, and the other is to recognize that any group of people who migrate to another place, as Tofik said earlier, are motivated to make a life there. So there's a lot of talent and skill and willingness to learn and contribute that we're turning away when we turn away refugees. It doesn't mean that all of them will make a contribution or that none of them will cause problems. Some of them will. But it's worth trying to solve that through assimilation and language courses as Germany is doing, Canada is doing, rather than to blanketly try to keep them away from what's perceived as a Western culture that um, if we were to be honest, we we would have to say uh, we're reticent to allow to become a little more brown. Topic.
2: Well, I would like to say to each and every person Go to Greece, go to Turkey, go to France, work at a refugee camp. Send your son, send your daughter, take your cousin with you. You won't regret it. You'll come back a different person. If you can't do that, go to your homeless shelter. Go find uh, veterans that are suffering from PTSD. Go volunteer in a low-income neighborhood. Go to a an animal shelter and take care of an animal. Get in touch with your humanity. You have a lot to offer and you have a lot more to offer that you don't know about. And together, all of us, we can all do our little bit to make this world a better place.
1: Thank you. Thank you both for coming in today. Thank you for your your strength and your you know motivation to go do things like this, to bring back these stories, to be a voice for the people who basically have no voice in this country and around the world. We appreciate it. We were speaking today to Taofik Hadabi, Palestinian American musician who recently traveled to halei Refugee Camp in France with Expressive Arts Refuge. He was there in July. And Betsy Blakesley, the organizer of the Expressive Arts Refugee program. Will you be back, Betsy? I'm considering taking a group um, to go back
3: at christmas time or calling it christmas in Calais.
1: Okay, great. And how can people maybe get in touch with you and or get involved or travel to these places? Can you let them know?
3: They can find me on Facebook, Betsy Blakesley, or go to our blog
1: ea com, and get details there. Thank you both both so much. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. And that's all, folks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Arabiyat. Our theme song is by Mukata'ah. The song is called Ahyat. You can listen to more of his stuff at soundcloud.com slash B-O-I-K-U-T-T. You can email us at A-R-A-B-I-Y-A-A-T at kpfa.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next time, I'm Linda Khoury, producing this episode for you from KPFA Studios in Berkeley, California.